get this patient brought in, he's medevaced in, comes by helicopter and then by ambulance from the airfield to our hospital. He's had an accident on his farm in rural Washington on his motorcycle. He's all cracked up. He's got fractures in multiple extremities, his legs and his arms. He's got a crushing chest wound. We're not sure if he's injured his head yet. He was unconscious at the site of the accident. He's brought in. We do our regular trauma evaluation that we do. We have a very protocol-based way to assess these patients to make sure we miss nothing. We're going to do a diagnostic peritoneal lavage on him to see if he has internal injuries in his stomach. But before we can do any of this, we need to test him for COVID because we don't know what we're dealing with. Welcome to Emergency Room the COVID Diaries. My name is Guy Madison. I'm a registered nurse working in the emergency room and ICUs of a major hospital in Seattle, Washington. Over the next few episodes of this podcast, I'm going to tell the story of how the COVID-19 pandemic swept across America from the perspective of us, the staff of a large American hospital. And I'm Matthew Hall, a journalist whose medical background is limited to a Red Cross CPR course and a pile of band-aids. My speciality, though, is asking the dumb questions. The story is going to be told through the eyes of Guy, who is responsible for the day-to-day and night-to-night emergency room response for incoming COVID-19 patients, as well as other hospital staff and workers. That's right, Matt. During the original phase of the pandemic, I was reassigned to the role of COVID coordinator at our hospital, responsible for testing and isolating incoming patients. So you were really in the middle of this mess as it unfolded. But let's press pause and recall just how did COVID end up in America? Well, as we all remember, patient one for the USA was identified right here in the Seattle area, and some of the first nursing home infections were here too. Even though the pandemic entered at different points in the US, Seattle was quickly identified as the, not necessarily ground zero, but the first area to have actually identified cases in the US. So during all this, Guy kept a journal and diary recording his experiences on the front line. There's some wild stuff in there, But before we get to the blood and guts, let's hear about how people's roles had to suddenly adapt to a whole new environment where many things were totally unknown, even to the experts. Also, important note, some names we've had to change to protect the innocent and uh, sometimes the guilty. Each episode will have a guest expert. That's somebody I work with at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. They're going to talk about their personal experiences at the hospital during the year of COVID. So first up is Vanessa Makarowitz. Guy, how do you know Vanessa? I've known Vanessa for many years now at the hospital. She's the Infection Prevention Operations Manager at Harborview. She's a registered nurse. I've worked with her on many committees during my career at the hospital. She is an awesome individual. I love a good committee. So here's a conversation we recorded with Vanessa earlier. She's going to explain what happened when COVID-19 first hit America. Boom. 
My name is Vanessa McCarowitz, and I'm the manager for infection prevention and control at Harborview Medical Center, Seattle, Washington. What does that mean? Um, I <laughs> manage the um, operations and uh, personnel for our infection prevention and control team. Uh, we are a set of four epidemiologists and two medical directors and one pharmacist. When did you guys first hear about COVID-19 and when did you get the idea that you guys were going to have to be doing something about it? Yeah, so um, it was Tuesday, January 21st at 5.30 a.m. Um, I received a text message from our assessment and treatment facility over in Spokane, Washington from their uh, nurse manager saying, hey, did you hear that Everett has a person under investigation or PUI in-house? And it actually was somewhat funny because I'm in bed, I roll over, look at the text message, and we had just completed an Ebola drill at Harborview and a series of different conferences in the fall with the state preparing for an Ebola virus disease patient. So the first thing in my head was like, they have an Ebola patient? And my husband's like, Vanessa, no, this is this is the uh, pneumonia cases from Asia. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is very intense. And I immediately texted my colleague up at Providence Everett and said, are you really doing this? Is this really happening? And um, she promptly texted back and said, yeah, this is real. And so then I texted Spokane and then uh, we have a very small um, infection prevention community here in King County in Washington. So we all know each other. And so then texts started flying. So that was that was really kind of the first point that, okay, here it's in the United States and we're going to have to start doing something. And immediately that Tuesday, our team met and started planning immediately of how uh, we are going to be taking care of these uh, patients, how, um, you know, how we're going to accept them, what kind of PPE we're going to need. We started immediately talking to our supply chains um, personnel to uh, get our PPE that we needed. Because that was a big lesson we learned from 2014 with the Ebola outbreak is that e PPE was um, really hard to get. And so uh, we kind of jumped on that right away. That is interesting because that was not what was reported in the media. Yeah, we already knew PPE was going to be hard to get uh, back in 2014 while the United States tried to prepare for accepting EBD or Ebola virus disease patients. We had to get the proper PPE, coveralls, impermeable boot covers, papper hoods. Uh, papper is our uh, machine respirator type of PPE. And at the time, the supply chain had no allocation plan. So in 2014, you ordered, say, some N95 respirators and you put in your order for, say, 500. They're like, oh, sorry, X hospital over here already purchased 1,000 and now we have no more supply. So I knew immediately um, that this was going to be an issue. And um, I actually, on that Tuesday, put in an order myself through my budget <laughs> for about 595s um, because I knew they were going to be scarce and they were going to get taken up very quickly. 
Um, but what the supply chain folks did this time versus what they did in 2014 is that they actually did allocate appropriately so that every facility got something um, based on their usage over the past three months. So they actually looked at your facility and said, okay, in October, November, December, you used X amount of N95s or X amount of gloves. And so you were allocated, I think it was about 80% of that. That way it was actually equally distributed versus in 2014 when whatever order came in, they filled it. And even though it was painful to not get the 100% of what you wanted, we were just really fortunate to get something and felt really good that other folks were able to get PPE as well. So what happened when you guys realized COVID-19 is here, there's people out in the world who need to come into your hospital who need treatment, but what were you guys thinking? What kind of protocols did you have to set up And did you set it up immediately or what did you do? Yeah. So like I said before, Harborview pulled the trigger right on that Tuesday. Our team immediately went into uh, planning for a special pathogen arrival. Um, What, What does that mean? So trying to figure out, okay, so trying to figure out, okay, what protocols do we need to protect our staff and protect our other patients? So I would say the first protocol that we really developed, uh, there were two. One uh, was just how to don and doff, so put on or take off your personal protective equipment. Um, And luckily, Harborview, we had a leg up because we had been designated a assessment and treatment facility for Ebola virus disease in 2014. So we actually had a special pathogen team Um, that I led from 2014 through present. um, And we did drills and worked on our checklists for taking on and uh, taking off PPE. So basically, it took those protocols that we already had developed and uh, streamlined them into a less um, hemorrhagic fever type of um, pathogen and more of a respiratory pathogen. What's so important about putting on and taking off PPE? You know, uh, that's a really great question. The, the personal protective equipment that healthcare workers use um, protect them for, from exposure to any type of pathogen, whether it be a uh, bacteria or a virus. It prevents them from being contaminated. But as they take off this equipment, not only is it protecting them from being contaminated, but also protects the subsequent patients they take care of. So if you can imagine, I'm going into a room that just has flu, okay, influenza. I have a gown on, I have gloves on, I have a mask and eye protection. If I don't take this equipment off very meticulously, I could contaminate my hands, I could contaminate the front of my scrubs, And then when I go to the next patient I'm taking care of, I might be helping them up to get out of bed and that bacteria and viruses that are on my scrubs could then transfer to the next patient. So it's very important that the way you take off your personal protective equipment is done in a very succinct and systematic way to minimize the chances of being contaminated. 
and even putting on, it's important to do in a systematic way. That way, you know, your PPE is going to function appropriately within that room. Do you trust the PPE? Absolutely. I am 100% trust it with my life. Another interesting thing that Harborview did even before admitting our first patient or even having a rule out or a person under investigation um, is that our infection prevention and control team actually did a home assessment team in which we took those first protocols of putting on and taking off the PPE. And I personally was the guinea pig to go into people's homes and test them. So instead of having them come into the facility to get a swab or assessed, we went out to the houses in order to minimize the disruption and the amount of resources these folks take as they come in in the emergency department or even being admitted. So myself, our medical director, Dr. John Lynch, our infection preventionists, and as well as our clinical educators who were part of our special pathogen team went out to people's houses between January and end of February testing uh, folks in the community. Um, So I trust it 100%. I have been into COVID rooms myself. And again, I, I, it really does work. But I think a lot of times people get a little complacent because they are putting on and taking this off multiple times a day. I mean, up to, I would say 100, 125 times a day. And you do that three days in a row times 12 months, you're going to feel comfortable doing it. So then you kind of loosen up how you do things. And then that's when the risk increases. But I absolutely trust it. It is very effective. um, And uh, we would be screwed without it. (laughs) Really would. What are these trained observers, you ask? Trained observers are clinical staff who are well-versed in the process of donning and doffing the protective equipment, PPE, that clinicians use inside the isolation rooms. The observer is there to help staff entering and leaving the isolation rooms correctly, putting on and taking off their PPE correctly. Difficult to remove the PPE while not contaminating your unprotected skin. There are multiple points in the doffing process where hand hygiene, that's hand washing or sanitizing, must be performed while PPE is taken off. Even opening the door requires a special process in terms of who touches the handle and from which side. Once outside the room, the precautions continue until the clinician is completely cleared from the room, meaning all their PPE has been safely removed and disposed of. So, the trained observers are vital staff that help keep everyone safe. They would normally be doing another job in the hospital, a nurse, a medical assistant, sometimes even the respiratory therapists fill in as trained observers. But under these extreme circumstances of COVID-19, they're repurposed to this one job of making sure that everyone stays safe while they interact with the COVID patients. Did you ever get COVID? I have not gotten COVID. My family um, has not gotten COVID. And believe it or not, all of my close friend group has not gotten COVID. And honestly, they would think I would be mad if they did, if they let me down. But um, everyone's adhered not only to, you know, masking, 
but really distancing themselves, not taking that trip, not having that gathering. I'm actually really proud of everybody. But the chances are increasing, right? My kids are in daycare. My, you know, I have a six-year-old that is in kindergarten. And as the schools have opened up and they're going in person and his bubble has increased, but uh, luckily he's a 100% masker and um, obsessive with hand hygiene. <laughs> so feeling pretty comfortable. Coco's in the same boat and also has been inculcated with the same. You never know um, how much your children retain from you. And I mean, my three-year-old uh, was talking about coronavirus last April. I have a great picture of him just saying, uh-oh, coronavirus. And they just heard me and their dad just incessantly talk about it because that's been our life. And so they just pick up on that vibe and know that they have to stay six feet away from people or mask up because they've just heard it and uh, we've role modeled it. And it's just been, it's fascinating what they pick up. It's things being reinforced. And that was, that would actually be interesting to talk about because at first that was not reinforced, even for hospital workers. And we had a really tough time all of us, myself included, remembering to observe that stuff. So do you want to talk yeah. about how hard it was to, to get us to do the right thing? It's still hard to get healthcare workers to do the right thing. Um, I think the perspective of a healthcare worker is we are unfortunately held to such a higher standard than the general population because getting COVID from a healthcare worker or a healthcare worker getting COVID and then the downstream effects that has not only on patients, but also your coworkers that you eat lunch with or take a coffee break with really is huge. And the healthcare workers have been working so hard, so hard, nonstop. We haven't had time to get our sourdough starter going or my SCOBY for my kombucha. Like I haven't had time to clean my house. I mean, we are after a three day stretch, I'm sure the bedside nurse or whomever RT, the supply chain people are exhausted, you know, a couple days to recover and then back at work. And, um, unfortunately it has not let up. Um, you know, last summer when cases were going down, COVID was still very alive and well within our institutions, not only in the hospital, but long-term care facilities. Um, and we never have gotten a break. And it's really hard to see your non-healthcare worker friends go camping, get together, go to Mexico, like all these. Vanessa, I'm very disappointed to hear that during quarantine, you didn't learn eight languages. <laughs> Right. I know. It's sad. I just look at my house and I'm like, look at all the things I could have done, but um, didn't, couldn't. Can, can you tell us about when patients came in, about testing them in an emergency environment? And also people would come in in different conditions, I guess, and different physical conditions. So can you talk about what that was like for, for you and your staff? Yeah. So I would say right at the beginning, there were tight restrictions on who could be tested and who couldn't be tested. And it was really all based off of uh, certain clinical presentations like fever, you know, shortness of breath, flu-like symptoms, but you had to be traveling 
um, from the certain identified areas in China. And so that really restricted who um, we could test because uh, we know the state would decline it. They would not send it to the CDC because everything had to be sent to Atlanta to get tested. And it was about like a week turnaround to get results. Wait, 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 wait. Say that again. (laughs) A week? It was about from Seattle for Seattle, Washington. It was about seven days to get a result. Yes, this was way in the beginning. We're talking like February. And that's only if they approved testing. So we would have to call the state or I, I forgot who we called. We might have called just Public Health Seattle King County and said, hey, we have a patient here. They recently traveled to X province. Uh, They're coming in with a fever, runny nose, congestion. And they would either say, yes, that's approved for testing or no, it's not. So if they weren't approved, we would go through like the normal, you know, flu, rule out. And at the beginning, a lot of the people that we were ruling out actually didn't have any necessarily acute injuries. That came later on. These were mostly travelers um, and people that were just ill uh, respiratory wise. And so we knew that testing was going to be our savior and really knew that uh, we had to get something up and running as soon as possible because a week turnaround was just too long to wait. And the PPE burn, the amount of personal protective equipment that you would use unnecessarily Oh, See, if you had have studied English instead of those eight languages, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, so you would be burning the PPE that you actually didn't need to, and that comes in the clutch, you know, in about another month or so when the resources of personal protective equipment uh, was scarce. And so that's why we did our home assessment team. If they did not need hospital care, we wanted people to stay home. We will come to you. We will do the testing if you qualify and and off you go. And there was a time in February when we were doing some home assessments that we actually had a few researchers from Dr. Helen Chu's lab come with us. I remember a a car conversation um, as we were going to this person's house and I said, man, I just... I see the lab at CDC with just like one person in it working all the time to get this test run. And I think they were like, it kind of is that way. There's not like a huge team right now um, doing this testing. Again, that's all hearsay, but that's kind of what my vision of what was happening in Atlanta was. You had a very small team uh, trying to get assays and the testing up and running. And then what happened? <laughs> how, did then, it, how, how did it change? Nursing home. Yes. Life care center in Kirkland happened. All bets were off then. It was over. I remember public health just saying, test who you want. Just test who you want. So, so for those who aren't familiar with that immediate history, explain what the, the Kirkland Center nursing home was about. Yeah. So the life care center in Kirkland... Uh, is a long-term care facility or a uh, skilled nursing facility. So people go there after hospitalization um, for various reasons, whether you need additional physical therapy, you have um, wound care that 
you know, can't be done by someone at your house. Um, and they had a series of um, very ill residents there that then got transferred over to a local hospital called Evergreen in Kirkland, Washington. And Dr. Frank Rito over there, even though these folks did not fit the criteria that was needed for testing of COVID-19, he was very suspicious. And I think somehow, I don't recall exactly what happened, but they were approved for testing and they had came back positive. And then that's when everything kind of blew up. Um, multiple patients had to be admitted. There's a great timeline from the Seattle Times. They have 911 recordings online that you can listen to what's going on at Kirkland. And that's when we really kind of started our emergency um, command center. And Evergreen got hit very hard. But then the next thing you know, uh, patients are showing up at Harborview. They're showing up at other area hospitals. And that's when our command center was deployed. And I remember being, this is when all of us were together in a room, kind of like a, a war room. And Dr. Steve Mitchell was one of our, who's our ED director, would hang up the phone. He's like, we have another one coming. Five minutes later, he'd hang up the phone. He's like, we have another one coming. And I just remember just being like, you have got to be kidding me. This is insane. But yeah, and then that's when the testing restrictions lightened up and, and off they went. Give us a quick timeline. How long did it take that we went from essentially normal to suspending elective surgery, initiating COVID commanders and all that sort of crap. How long did that take? The timeline from Kirkland until how long did it take us to go? You know, from the point of Life Care Centre to the point in which we were full on up and running was a matter of a couple of days. I think we started to suspend surgeries probably a little bit a couple of weeks after that. The tide had shifted at that point in which... Actually, people started to take our team seriously because that was in March. Our team had been working two months prior to that saying, oh my gosh, we have an upcoming pandemic happening. I remember sitting around the table going, what are we going to do? And Dr. John Lynch was like, why is the CDC so restrictive with their testing? Is this actually a way to introduce a pandemic into society? If we just said, we're having a pandemic, people would lose it. But was this a phased approach actually by the CDC to say, okay, let's start here. We know it's here, but like, let's start and then we can expand. Perhaps that's what they did and why they did it. I don't really know. So, I mean, that's really when people started to take us seriously and listen to us. Because I think we were, <laughs> we were trying the best we can to gain... Um, administrative support and, you know, trying to introduce this to folks and talk about COVID. There wasn't even a name for it at the time. We called it NCOV, novel coronavirus. Um, and we were all excited when they decided to name it. And then we didn't like the name, but now we do. <laughs> so. That's a perfect summation right there. So Vanessa, I remember asking you before we got the first nursing home patients and the tide shifted, if you felt that was different to say MERS, which we'd seen earlier. Do you remember what you told me? I just remember being really serious. And I'm not a very serious person. I remember you in my office and I just sat there and I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a big thing. 
And I, I just remember telling you to cancel your trip abroad. I was like, no, you need to get, it might've been like in a couple of months too. It might've been like what, May or June. And I was like, you need to stop. <laughs> it's not going to happen. That's exactly right. Yeah. Go Isle of Man in May. What do you think it was for you that gave you that sort of innate feeling or that, um, yeah, yeah the- I think the biggest thing compared to like other, you know, respiratory diseases we've seen in the past, like avian flu, I think the fact that we had a patient in the United States showed to me in January that we were already behind the ball. Like it was already here. We just got lucky that this he was identified in January and versus other, you know, highly pathogenic respiratory viruses, you know, they were all just situated in in Asia, right? They never were here in the United States that we knew of. But the fact that we had a patient here really showed to me that, oh wow, this is gonna be big. So, Vanessa, you said that the the talk was a pandemic was going to come. People knew something was going to happen eventually. So were we prepared? Was Harborview prepared better than most? (laughs) I'll say that. But were we prepared? No. You know, um, I'm actually uh, currently working uh, with a couple of colleagues uh, discussing this topic of... um, just coordination throughout our region. Um, and one colleague, uh, Aaron Resnick, who's with our uh, healthcare coalition, he's like, we were not prepared. And, and I told him, I'm like, but I feel a little bit different because without our prior preparation with Ebola, without the relationships here in Washington that we developed over the past six years, we had a step up. We had some rudimentary plans to deal with Ebola, which helped us, I I think, uh, coordinate and uh, help each other out. But I don't think you can ever be prepared for something like this, to be honest with you. You know, hindsight's 2020, but I have, (laughs) and in 2018, I still have in a notebook of mine, a to-do list of, and it says N95 pandemic supplies. And that was in 2018. And again, trying to have someone listen to you to have the money you know the willpower or someone to be like actually no we really need to pay attention to this it's it's hard again that box is still unchecked and i show supply chain every time i meet with them i'm like but we're planning that now which is going to set up the future for better preparedness in a pandemic because there's going to be another one you know i don't think it's going to be another 100 years it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves. I think we could definitely be in this situation in another decade or so. It'll be really interesting to see. But I think you can only do what you can do with the information you have at the time and the resources that you have in the time. And um, I think there's definitely a ton of lessons that we've learned. But just like Ebola, everyone was in all in from 2014 to about 2016. 
But as I continued preparations for that, the interest in healthcare workers being part of our team has decreased. The enthusiasm from leadership has decreased. They're like, that's never going to happen. And I'm like, but it might, you know, let's be prepared. Um, So things wax and wane, you know, but um, hopefully I think in the future, the lessons that we learned here, the protocols that we put in place are now on computer. So we didn't have that in 1919. So at least we'll have an electronic record of what we've done um, to help set someone up in the future to be on a better foot than, than we were. Well, one question I wanted to ask is, what do you think was the one innovation or intervention that your team did that had the biggest positive effect on how we dealt with the situation? I think the one intervention that really set us in motion was our home assessment team hands down, to work through uh, sequences of how to get out of a house safely, set the stage for how to get out of a patient room safely, how to draw blood safely, what amount of supplies you needed, um, how many people did you need to do this safely? You know, I think that in the beginning, that was huge. I also think, sorry, I have to pick another one, really is the involvement of uh, the UW Virology Lab. Dr. Alex Greninger, Dr. Helen Chu, doing all the work they did in January was huge. They set up the tests. They were doing surveillance on the back end with the Seattle flu study. They actually went rogue. And that really saved the world, I think, honestly, for testing, um, for surveillance, Dr. Helen Chu's lab uh, found the first community acquired COVID. God, it's just unbelievable and mind-blowing. So the work and the off-protocol that they did, it saved us. It really did save us. Do you have one snapshot? If you had a photo of one thing, what would it be of? Um, I do have a snapshot of Dr. John Lynch in our conference room first week of February, with his hoodie over his head, his jacket zipped all the way up, glasses off, and just sitting forward, trying to understand what is going to happen. And it was at that point where we knew that our lives were going to change, and it's going to be totally different. And that was the first week of February. And that kind of like set the mood for the rest of the preparations And I remember going skiing at the end of February, or trying to, I was on the phone in between runs and looking at everyone happy, having fun. And there was just a sense of dread in my stomach going, these people have no clue what's ahead of them. It was a very, very dark time for all of us, I think on our team coming to terms with this. And then how are we going to lead the organization? How are we going to lead our families? How are we going to be the the leaders in all of this? That was Vanessa Makarowitz, the Infections Prevention Operations Manager at Harborview Medical Center. She blew my mind with many things, but what blew my mind was medical staff and doctors and people at hospitals texting each other early in the morning as this creeping COVID came to America. It's almost like there's water coming 
like under the door and you're texting people you work with or or no and just all these texts flying about that that was just wild yeah it's a good analogy the water coming under the door because yeah that's a great thing about vanessa is you know she's part of a small group of experts in this area epidemiologists um and uh infection prevention specialists at hospitals in the area there's only a few people doing that job that keep the rest of us the thousands of other people that do the rest of the care at the hospital safe and keep the hundreds of thousands of patients safe so they're the ones that really have this um this in-depth knowledge and yeah the creeping water because i think that well clearly as vanessa said they could see that they were about to be drowned by this rising tide as we like to say in America, Vanessa, thank you for your service. So, hold on a minute. What happened to the motorcycle guy we were hearing about at the beginning of this podcast? Ah, very interesting. Yes. So, as it turned out, we went through the whole testing procedure and he ended up being COVID negative. Um, But we had to crash him to the OR and we didn't have time to get his um, test back before that. So when we say crash to the OR, that's in the common parlance of a trauma center where I work. That means that the patient cannot wait to go to surgery, that we think that their injuries are life-threatening enough that they need immediate surgical intervention typically with internal injuries like um, uh, a ruptured spleen or um, a liver laceration. They're the sort of things that need to be taken care of immediately before the patient bleeds to death. So we crashed him down. We didn't know whether he was negative or positive at that stage. So his whole case, his whole surgical case was done in the highest level of respiratory isolation that we had available to us, which, you know, must have been, I was not there in the operating room, but I can only imagine that that was quite the inconvenience for the surgeon and the surgical staff, the anesthesiologists, the OR nurses, um, the OR technicians, because they would have all had to be in pappers, just like the hoods that you see if ever, if anyone's ever seen the Dustin Hoffman movie Outbreak. You know, that's essentially what you're looking at. You're in a big white suit. Uh, with a beekeeper's hat on, completely isolated, and you've got to do this quite intricate surgery with those extra restrictions. So as it turned out, the guy that crashed his motorcycle did very well. Um, Surgery was very successful, and he was transferred to the ICU unit after that, kept in isolation that whole time until we finally got his results back that said he was negative and then we could remove some of the isolation precautions for that patient because we had determined that he was absolutely COVID negative. So but, so what I'm understanding is you guys are doing your regular job all of a sudden wearing spacesuits. Yeah, for for want of a better expression. I mean, they do look like spacesuits. Um, yes, so... There are certain situations in the hospital where um, there are other infectious diseases that require us to wear those. Active tuberculosis would be one of them, but it's very rare. And all of a sudden, we're in a situation where every trauma case that comes in, potentially we don't know whether they have COVID or not. We don't know how much COVID's out in society at that time. So we're doing, yes, 
we're doing all our work in spacesuits. So this is the perfect opportunity to hear from some of the people you work with and get them to tell us about what happens when someone's wheeled in who's crashed their motorbike and what they have to do while wearing a spacesuit. Indeed. Join us next time for episode two of Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries, where we will dive into life and death on the intensive care units during the pandemic. Our guest will be critical care nurse Matt Cazier of Harborview Hospital. Emergency Room is written and presented by Matthew Hall and Guy Madison. Produced by Guy Madison, Matthew Hall and Ruinous Media. Music by Mudhoney. Beauty Hunters. And Plant. Plant or Plant. Either way, both work. Plant. If you'd like to contact us. Or need to contact us, just go to ruinousmedia.com. All right.